Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Douglas Johnston is founder and president of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Among its accomplishments, the center helped end a 21-year-old civil war, brokered the release of 14 Taliban-held hostages, and many other accomplishments as they work to prevent violence and defuse religious conflict in some of the most dangerous regions in the world. Johnston and his team use diplomatic back channels and faith-based diplomacy to effect positive change where traditional diplomatic missions have failed. Douglas Johnston will appear today as a part of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Talk series. And his talk is titled, Faith-Based Diplomacy as a Counter to Violent Extremism. His talk today is at the USU Taggart Student Center Auditorium. It's 4.30 and free and open to the public this afternoon. Douglas Johnston is a scholar, diplomat, peacemaker. He was the youngest officer in the Navy to qualify for command of a nuclear submarine. And as I mentioned, he's founder and president of Washington, D.C.-based International Center for Religious Diplomacy. Douglas Johnston, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, how did this uh, come about, uh, you, you're founding this International Center for Religious Diplomacy? What, what need are, were you trying to, to meet there? I was teaching uh, at Harvard University at one point uh, a course in international security, and we were focused on nuclear doctrine at the time. And, and it sort of occurred to me one day that here we were, we and the Soviets were spending uh, trillions of dollars and rubles on weapon systems, the sole purpose for which they not was that they not be used because we were enhancing deterrence while half the rest of the world continued to starve to death. And I thought that was pretty ludicrous. And then wearing that same hat, I thought, well, you know, the United States is second to no one in history in terms of our ability to mount a strong defense to keep the peace. But I thought we were pretty inept at making peace. Uh, and then wearing another, a different hat, I'd been involved with a National Prayer Breakfast in Washington for a number of years and had seen how people operating on the basis of their personal religious faith have been able to uh, resolve differences, uh, reconcile differences between people, factions, sometimes bringing wars to a halt with no one the wiser for how it took place. And I thought, you know, if this kind of activity could be uh, captured in a compelling way and, may, and be made known to uh, policymakers and diplomats, that there might be an opportunity for government to uh, reinforce it to build upon it, uh, never try to own it, uh, because that would taint it with the political agenda, but to sort of create a new synergy for peacemaking that didn't otherwise exist. And to, to make that, um, that theory come alive, uh, a good example is uh, a uh, rather brutal civil war that took place in Mozambique uh, probably close to 20 years ago at this point. But uh, during that conflict, uh, a lay Catholic community in, uh, based in Rome called the Community of San Egidio was providing humanitarian assistance and concluded after a while that unless they could uh, uh, do something to resolve the differences, they were just throwing good money after bad. And uh, So they sought to win the trust of both sides, and they took guerrillas to their first dental appointments and bought them their first eyeglasses and won their trust at a, at a personal level. And, uh, and in the in the process, we're kind of rehumanizing what had become a very dehumanized uh, uh, effort, you know, in which you disfigure your enemies and the friends of your enemies. And, and uh, as, as we've seen so often happen in Africa, uh, Sierra Leone being a, a recent case in point, 
But uh, they got both sides to peace talks, and after about the third round of talks, they concluded that uh, if they were to succeed in what they were setting out to do, um, that uh, they would not have the wherewithal to monitor a ceasefire or guarantee free multi-party elections afterwards. So in the ninth round of talks, they invited uh, ambassadors from four countries, the U.S. being one, and the United Nations, uh, in as official observers. And in the tenth round of talks, they officially passed the baton to those folks who brought the uh, uh, resources of their respective nation-states to bear uh, oversaw the signing of the treaty, monitored the ceasefire, guaranteed the elections, and and now for quite some time you've had uh, peace uh, in a democratically stable uh, Mozambique and uh, an economy that has uh, been doing quite well. And this was all because official diplomacy was able to build upon the trust that religious third parties had brought to the equation. And so that was... Uh, you know that was a uh, a good example of uh, what this kind of thing could do. I'd like to play a clip from a film uh, produced by uh, by your center. I believe it's called "Back from the Brink: Countering Violent Extremism." And this film, I, I'd like to use this clip and kind of a, a talking about what you were just talking about, and later on talk about some of the themes in that film, in which uh, people who have been engaged in violent extremism um, are coming out of that that life. But let's let's hear that. I didn't catch the gentleman's name on the film, but let's let's hear what he says here. What we have found is people who are violent extremists engage them respectfully, with dignity. There are a significant number not only denounced militancy and violent extremism, they in fact started to speak against it. So that's a pretty powerful uh, statement, and I, I wonder if that's uh, you know it's I guess it's that's a starting point. You. You engage people with with respect, with dignity. But that's I don't know. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around that. You know, do you go in to talk to a group that's that's been been killing your group? Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's usually uh, um, better if you uh, have a third party who's, yeah. who's playing mm-hmm. that role. You know, it's uh, it's quite difficult uh, to do it from the vantage point of one of the protagonists without uh, a third party sort of intervening and. And uh, you know, and once once that third party has won the respect of both sides, uh, however it has been achieved, uh, then uh, you'll find that there's a, a, an increased willingness to actually uh, uh, get to talking to one another directly at some point. Mm-hmm. And we we have various mechanisms for trying to facilitate that in a, in a useful way. What what is the role of religion? Do you think religion is much bashed? These days, and especially, uh, you know, Islam is getting, getting bashed. In some quarters, people say it's just a violent religion, and they they use the extremist groups as as proof. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, uh, it's long been known that religion can be a, a source of great conflict, and has been over the centuries. And when we set out to uh, try to do the opposite, you know, uh, to capitalize on its uh, peacemaking potential. Uh, it's rather counterintuitive to a lot of folks to, to think that you can actually use religion for good. But uh, at the heart of it, all of world religions are basically about neighborly concern and the better of men of humanity. And uh, their weakness, of course, is that uh, they're often uh, too easily co-opted by power politics. And uh, uh, while they may not be the cause of the conflict, usually you'll find that political power and distribution of resources are really at the heart of all these conflicts. But religion 
gets misused as a badge of identity and a mobilizing vehicle and the like. And, and so, you know, one of the one of the great challenges for each of us individually is to call our religions, uh, hold them hold them to the uh, tenets uh, that lie at the heart of why they were, um, you know, um, put together in the first place. Uh, and so, yeah, we we do hear calls for same. Um, hate to keep picking on Islam, but uh, you know, moderate uh, Muslims to raise their voice, but in some areas it's dangerous to do so, isn't it? Well, that's right, and ironically, just uh, yesterday we concluded a three-day conference in, uh, we held up at Temple University in Philadelphia where we brought together about 50 uh, uh, scholars, uh, experts, and uh, religious leaders, and the target audience were evangelical pastors, basically, but it was around the whole theme of Islamophobia uh, and, and religious freedom. And, and the whole idea was to, you know, to see if we couldn't uh, uh, de- develop thoughtful responses to what that's all about. I mean, at, at this point in time, right now, uh, today and tomorrow, there's uh, something going on called the Global Rally for Humanity, which is uh, uh, calls for uh, demonstrations in front of mosques across the across the country and. And to me, it's uh, either uh, very coincidental or, or else it's divine intervention that it should come just the day after we finish this uh, major conference on this, uh, the very theme of, of Islamophobia. And one of the things that's so, I think, important here is to, to distinguish between our own American Muslim community and the, the extremists overseas, because from a strategic point of view, I think... Uh, the American Muslim community is probably our most formidable asset in the global war against militant Islam. Mm. Uh, not only has that community been responsible for uncovering a significant number of al-Qaeda plots against the United States, but they also have uh, extensive paths of influence with Muslim com- communities overseas, many many of these in places of strategic consequence to the U.S. And also, another thing, factor that few people think about is that uh, uh, the American Muslim community represents a, a beacon of hope to Muslims all over the world who are not disposed toward violence. And, and uh, as they well know, American Muslims enjoy greater freedom of thought than most other Muslims around the world, and they actively bridge modernity and the contemporary practice of Islam on a daily basis. And, and that's something that's still a, a great puzzle for most other practitioners of the faith around the world. Hmm. So there's a lot at stake, uh, lots of nuances to all of this business. But I think if we were smart, we would uh, try to avoid alienating uh, what I consider to be our, probably our strongest asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how how do we go about doing that and engaging you know, uh, that that community? I guess the conferences like, like the one you participated in. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, I, I often get asked uh, by people in, in speaking engagements, uh, what can we do? And uh, one thing that I think is important, there's a good clue provided by uh, research conducted by uh, uh, Pew uh, in uh, research. Uh, in, in They determined that uh, those who actually know a real live Muslim generally have twice as favorable a view of Islam as those who don't. That's not rocket science. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of 
basic human nature. But but uh, what I encourage people to do is to I say, look, uh, um, try to prevail upon the pastor of your church or the rabbi of your synagogue to seek out the imam of the nearest mosque and see if they can strike up a personal relationship. And then if that, you know, gets some traction, then that can easily play into a social gathering where you bring the congregants from both sides together. And then if it it plays out and where you really, I think, can almost raise the victory flag is when your uh, pastor or rabbi preaches a sermon in the mosque and the imam preaches one in the, the church or the synagogue. Uh, and and then you know a lot of goodwill is created, and one of the things about the American Muslim community it's uh, it's relatively small in numbers. That nobody quite knows exactly how many. It ranges from two to twelve million, but but they're uh, they're uh, relatively young. They're politically active. Uh, they're uh, well educated. Uh, relatively affluent uh, compared to the the average and uh, you know they make a little bit higher income and this sort of thing and so they they bring a lot to the table in terms of uh, what uh, America is all about and I just think we we need to capitalize on that uh, we did uh, back in 2006 I grew concerned that we were sort of unwittingly alienating that community through onerous treatment by customs officials and the like, and brought uh, uh, 30 uh, American Muslim leaders together with 30 U.S. government officials, mostly most of them security and foreign policy officials. And I did this uh, jointly with uh, the International Institute of Islamic Thought, which is based in Herndon, Virginia, but also with the Institute for Defense Analyses, which is the Pentagon's leading think tank. And we brought these folks together to see if we couldn't uh, inspire them to start working together for the common good. And uh, uh, we came up with a lot of recommendations, and then a year later convened another conference to hold everybody accountable and come up with new ideas, which we did. And out of it, uh, on the U.S. government's part, the... uh, uh, the doors opened much wider at the departments of defense, state, justice, and homeland security for inputs from its Muslim citizens. And uh, on the other side, uh, the Muslims put together a directory of specialists that uh, policymakers and the media could call whenever they had issues or concerns in certain areas where the, the uh, Islam was a, a factor. Uh, but more to the point, they formed a group called American Muslims for Constructive Engagement, and they, in our center, we have uh, co-hosted a series of policy forums on Capitol Hill where we bring uh, key legislative staff together with key executive branch staff and outside experts, and uh, we'll go up there and over lunch, a working lunch, we'll sort of talk about We'll have one of the staffers talk about the problems they're actively wrestling with with respect to the given focus of that meeting, which might be the Muslim Brotherhood or it might be Bahrain or it might be Afghanistan or whatever it is. Uh, And we have a a very rich one and a half hours of discussion back and forth about the issues. And and everybody comes away uh, much better informed than when they walked in. I was amazed at the transformation I felt myself when I, we discussed Afghanistan. I was pretty uh, pessimistic at the time, but then uh, in that 
gathering uh, heard uh, uh, firsthand about, uh, or at least secondhand, I guess, that uh, how the youth were so uh, uh, hopeful in Afghanistan. Uh, to them, the Taliban was kind of a distant memory, uh, ancient history, and they were all caught up in all the good things that had happened in the intervening 12 years and very hopeful about the future and, and could play a, a key role in, in getting things on a good track. Of course, there's there will always be the naysayers and the pessimists, but I found a, a little renewed optimism there. But anyway, the whole purpose of this affair is to is to impart a more nuanced understanding of Islam to our Washington policy process, because you know that's that's what we got out there. You know, ironically, too, um, I was, I had to speak at a church not too long ago, and it was a an Episcopal church, and I said, you know, we're we're all, everybody here is a Christian. And I said, uh, if you believe half of what you read and see in the media, you would conclude that Islam is our enemy. I said, well, what, what are we as Christians enjoined to do about our enemies? And then I segue into describing the, the kind of work that we're doing. But, uh, you know, I... When you when you get down to holding people accountable to their religious precepts, you find that uh, Christians don't do a whole lot better than anybody else at uh, you know turning the other cheek and loving your enemy and that sort of thing. So so it's just you know there's all kinds of opportunities for us to do a better job. Uh, so I was going to ask you about the media. Do you do you think uh, what do you think the media should do better? Because some of the things you're saying and as a result of your conversations, conferences, and, and so forth. Uh, would be news to a lot of people. Uh, what 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 should the media do differently? That's true. Uh, I, well, I, I just uh, I think the media should uh, seek out. You know, try, I know that uh, sensationalism is what sells. And for example, uh, ever since nine uh, eleven, you've heard this uh, enduring refrain. You know, where are the moderates? Why don't they speak out? Well. Uh, to the extent that they don't speak out, a lot of that is driven by uh, directly by fear in, in places overseas where you know, there's chaos because they're under attack and the like, and even indirectly where you find uh, a lot of folks uh, here in the U.S. have relatives overseas in those countries who are kind of held hostage to their behavior over here in a sense. I mean, they're afraid that they speak out too forcefully that... Uh, Revenge will be taken against their families, but but the fact of the matter is is that uh, mainstream Muslims nobody likes to be called a moderate, I guess. So we call them mainstream Muslims, but they are speaking out. The problem is it's not deemed newsworthy. You know, there's not a lot of sensationalism. But there's the last count. And this was several years ago. I looked, and there were over 700 fatwas that had been issued by. Uh, American Muslim leaders uh, in this country against terrorism, and countless statements uh, along the same way. So they're 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 there. The only way they they make it into print or or other media is if they pay to to do it, and you can only do that for so long. And there's some of that that's gone on, but but there's a lot more uh, playback from mainstream Muslims than uh, they get credit for. That's for sure. You just joined us. We're talking with Dr. Douglas Johnston. He's founder and president of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Religion and Diplomacy. 
Among its accomplishments, the centers helped end a 21-year-old civil war. It's brokered the release of 14 Taliban-held hostages. You can hear some of those stories at uh, a talk that Douglas Johnson will be giving uh, later today as a part of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Talk series. And his talk is titled, Faith-Based Diplomacy as a Counter to Violent Extremism. That talk is in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium, and it's at 4.30 uh, this afternoon. Uh, we'll take a brief break. When we come back, I want to uh, take a look at, uh, there's a couple of very interesting papers on the uh, blog for the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, which, by the way, is icrd.org. One of these... Um, is titled, Is Secularism Necess- a Necessary Condition for Democratization? I think a lot of people are, you know, maybe got their hopes up with the Arab Spring and uh, then had those uh, dashed. Uh, that's one aspect of that. I want to get into this uh, film, very interesting film. It's called Back from the Brink, Countering Violent Extremism, produced by the uh, Center. And, in fact, you can find it there on the uh, the Center's website. Uh, just some some uh, heartbreaking, very hopeful stories though, of uh, from Los Angeles, from the gang life there, from Pakistan, and from Lebanon. We'll talk more about this following a break. This is Brian Erickson, and bringing more to life. Planning for medical decisions isn't easy, but it is the responsible, compassionate thing to do. Ask two questions. First, in the event you become too sick to speak for yourself. Who would you like to speak for you? And second, what are the three most important things you want us to understand about your end-of-life wishes? Know your parents' values. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Douglas Johnston, who's founder and president of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Their website is uh, icrd.org. Douglas Johnston is in Logan. He's uh, going to be giving a talk this afternoon at 4.30 in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the Utah State University campus. This is in the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Talk series. Talk is titled "Faith-Based Diplomacy as a Counter to Violent Extremism." Douglas Johnston is a scholar, diplomat, peacemaker, and the youngest officer in the Navy to qualify for command of a nuclear uh, submarine. Douglas Johnston, uh, I wonder if we could begin this segment with just a little bit of your bio. So we talked a bit about how the uh, center came about, but how do you get from, you know, the a successful naval officer to? I guess, academia and to uh, efforts of uh, faith-based diplomacy around the world? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I guess actually the driving factor was, uh, uh, if you're biblically oriented, it was Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. And I just saw that uh, uh, we as a country, uh, we're all patriots, but... Uh, we also have responsibility for how our country behaves in different situations, and I just felt that uh, we're the leading arms merchants in the world, so you might, one might think that peace is really not in our own best interest if we're selling everybody the arms, but but I think peace really is in everyone's best interest, and if you don't 
uh, if, if you don't believe that, I invite you to take a, a walk around the orthopedic ward at uh, Walter Reed Hospital, and you see all these young folks who have paid such a terrible price, having lost one, two, or more limbs, uh, and coming back and having to face life in that condition. You know, it, uh, we we tend to romanticize war until we come up. Get involved with it up close and personal, and then it's just the ugliest nightmare that you can imagine. Mm. And, and we, I, I think, we just, you know, we need to find better ways to resolve our differences, or we're never going to, uh, mankind's never going to achieve its full potential. And that's kind of where I come from on all this. The fact that uh, I come out of the political military arena has. Uh, really been a, a great asset in getting this uh, center off the ground because uh, if I had come out of the conflict resolution field or peacemaking arena or church community or what have you, uh, we would have never made it. But uh, if you, uh, you know, the political military arena is uh, where all the life and death decisions are made. And if you can traverse that minefield, you can make just about anything work. Mm. And uh, and that's kind of what we've done here with the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. And I, I believe now that we've uh, made the case well enough that, that folks from those arenas can step in and take it from here. But they would have never been able to get it off the ground because in the real politique realm, you know, uh, religion was thought to be soft, squishy, and irrelevant. And, and uh, conflict resolution was equated with pacifism, uh, neither of which are are right. Uh, And one of the things I find so ironic is here we are, one of the most religious nations on the face of the planet, and we're so incapable of dealing with these uh, religious issues. You know, 85% of the world's population derives their reason for being from their religion, and yet we don't even, you know, we we haven't let it on the table. It's been off our policymaker screens for a long, long time, and if it, if it ever was on there in the first place. And uh, in the Cold War, you could understand it when the overriding uh, requirement was to uh, contain the godless Soviet Union. You know, so by, by being godless, that meant religion wasn't at the table. But uh, that's no longer the case, and it's been a long haul. Uh, but our, our leading uh, number one goal for our center when we set it up was to facilitate the incorporation of religious considerations into our practice of U.S. foreign policy. And uh, we, have, uh, we have worked hard at that, and I'm, I'm very pleased to say that that is, is taking place. Uh, a little over two years ago, an Office for Religion and Global Affairs was, uh, was uh, established in the State Department. And uh, under very able leadership, leadership that had... Uh, uh, the Secretary of State's ear, and that has made all the difference there. Uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, what they've done with that office is kind of a Band-Aid fix where major surgery is required. And if anyone is interested in that major surgery, we, we put out a book in uh, 2011 called Religion, Terror, and Error, and the subtitle was U.S. Foreign Policy and the Challenge of Spiritual Engagement. And uh, the book won the Book of the Year award, uh, but it's uh, like everything else in this country; it's uh, slow to have an impact, you know. And, mm-hmm. and uh, but we're on the way; yeah, we're we're going to get there. I wonder, um, 
if you give us a, maybe another example of, of uh, you know, back-channel diplomacy, faith-based diplomacy. Uh, don't take all your stories, of course, from this afternoon, but uh, is there one you could, could tell us to illustrate? Yeah, one, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, one that uh, comes to mind, you say back-channel, uh, was uh, our first uh, project was in the Sudan, and uh, there were lots of uh, non-governmental organizations like ourselves who were involved over there, but they were all in the South trying to uh, help alleviate the pain and suffering relating to the conflict. We took a different strategy. We went to the North and tried to establish relationships of trust with the Islamic regime, and from that vantage point inspire them to take steps toward peace that they wouldn't otherwise take. Uh, and that uh, that played out on any number of fronts, and all to, all to good effect, I might add. Uh, but one of the things we did there, which was uh, more along the lines of traditional diplomacy, was uh, uh, I was uh, able to... Uh, or we were able to facilitate uh, uh, off-the-record meetings in out-of-the-way places between the Sudanese foreign minister and our own assistant secretary of state for African affairs, who was somebody I had hired previously at a uh, think tank uh, that I was uh, uh, the executive vice president of called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And, uh, you know, having those personal relationships and all helps facilitate being able to do things like this. But but that was very helpful in the whole process of uh, bringing the north and the south of Sudan to a peace agreement. Mm. Yeah, yeah, a great achievement. By the way, we're talking with uh, Douglas Johnston, who uh, is founder and president of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Religion and Diplomacy. I was very interested in a film on your website, Dr. Johnson, that Back from the Brink, Countering Violent Extremism. I highly recommend people go and, and check it out. Um, and you, you traveled to Los Angeles and uh, talked to gang members there, um, you know, trying to come out of that life, uh, to Pakistan. Uh, you were, you're a senator's work in the madrasas there, trying to teach, uh, you know, tolerance there. And to Lebanon, uh, there, there are... Um, I guess a whole generation of now middle-aged people who were young people during the Lebanese uh, Civil War who, uh, you know, grew up basically without a childhood. And I believe this gentleman fits in, into that uh, category. Let's, uh, let's hear this, uh, this clip. After war had ended, I mean, we noticed that uh, we had been crazy. I mean, what has happened? Why was he attacking me? Why was I attacking him? Everything seems so futile, I mean. Uh, when you go to downtown and you, you sit and drink and eat and uh, he, he is a Muslim, I am a Christian, and we were killing each other for every square meter in this area. What for? That's very powerful. After the war was ended, we noticed we'd been crazy. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that's, that there is a bit of craziness to, to war and, and, and to violent extremism. There's, I guess, a mindset you have to get into or be driven into. And so the film talks about, you know, why do people get into this and, and how you get them out? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Well, we're, we're trying, with, with the film, what we're trying to do is to provide a basis for people to start thinking about how they can, uh, you know, avoid the, the violent extremism that runs rampant. Now, it may sound like a pretty strange mix, uh, you know, uh, gang warfare in Los Angeles to our work in reforming the madrasas in Pakistan to... Uh, what went on in the Lebanese Civil War, but uh, 
it's very powerful stuff, and the uh, having the LA piece in there is uh, important because, you know, if you show uh, a DVD like this overseas to other countries, you know, uh, you're always immediately suspected of paternalism, you know, preaching to others. Well, by having the LA piece in there, it shows others that, hey, we all have this problem. We're all in it together, you know, and it's not like us sort of preaching to anybody else. We, we have our own problems. So, and then the Lebanon piece, I think, is very powerful because in Lebanon, you know, the whole attitude over there has been one of denial. People just, you know, they don't talk much about that civil war or what actually took place. And and this uh, film really captures uh, a lot of soul-searching on the part of those who were most involved in the killing and the maiming and the rest of it, you know. So it's a, it, it, it's a grabber. And then what we've done in Pakistan, uh, a lot of sensitivities, a lot of dangers, you might imagine, but uh, we uh, we basically have uh, uh, been able to persuade uh, these madrasa leaders uh, uh, to expand their curriculums to include the physical and social sciences, but with a very strong emphasis on religious tolerance and uh, human rights, uh, particularly women's rights and uh, to uh, transform their pedagogy, create critical thinking skills among the youth. And we've, been, we've done it in such a way that it's, it's really worked. And this stands in marked contrast to everyone else who's ever tried to deal with the madrasas, uh, especially the government of Pakistan. But we conducted this uh, effort in such a way that uh, the uh, madrasa leaders felt it was their reform effort, not something imposed from the outside that they have a lot of ownership of the change process. Mm-hmm. And uh, while most people, you know, based on their impressions of the media, would think these madrasas are no more than seedbeds of terrorism, yet, you know, once upon a time, they were the best of the best. They were without peers, institutions of higher learning in the world at the time, and it was only European exposure to them that led to our own university system. And you'd be shocked at how many traditions and mores uh, at Utah uh, State University uh, and, and everywhere else across the land trace their roots back to the madrasas. But we've all forgotten that, you know. And, you know, and the madrasas went downhill because of uh, colonialism when the Brits took over and they were fearful of losing their Muslim identity. So, you know, they purged themselves of all topics that were Western or rational in nature and, and uh just relegated themselves to rote memorization of the Quran and the study of Islamic principles. And so we're just kind of trying to walk the cat back with them, you know. And the other thing we do there is yeah, we inspire them with their own heritage, but also, uh, you know, ground all suggested change in Islamic principles so that they can feel they're becoming better Muslims in the process. And, and uh, I, I think key to all of this was having a project director who is just second to none in his ability to to do all these things because he's Pakistani-American, grew up in Karachi, uh, attended a madras himself, best trainer I've ever seen in my life, and one of the most likable people on the face of the planet. You know, that combination was just sort of like a hot knife cutting through butter. And, And the reason we were able to do it uh, what we do with the madrasas is because Islam is so decentralized. You know, we could never get away with what we're doing in a 
Catholic boarding school, for example. And so all, all you really need to do is persuade and convince that local madrasa leader that you've got a better mousetrap. And I was uh, been simply bowled over by the courage of these folks because once you get past the veneer of rage and hostility and engage them, uh, not only do they get it, but many of them become champions of what you're talking about at great personal risk to themselves. Hmm. But, uh, you know, this is, you know, bombs and bullets have their place, but they're not going to drain the swamp of extremism. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the kind of thing it does. You win hearts and minds and it becomes contagious. If you just joined us, we're talking with Douglas Johnston. He's founder and president of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Religion and Diplomacy. And his talk this afternoon at 4.30 on the Utah State University campus is titled Faith-Based Diplomacy as a Counter to Violent Extremism. That's a part of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Talk series. The talk is at 4.30 this afternoon in the USU Taggart Student Center Auditorium, free and open to the public. We'll take a brief break, come back with the final segment with uh, Douglas Johnston. Al Gore, yes, that Al Gore, runs an investment firm now. As you'd guess, he's big on sustainability, but also big on making money. They are doing very well by the standards that capitalism should care about, which is return on assets. I'm Kai Rizdal. Al Gore tries to reinvent capitalism next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Tuesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. We're pleased to be talking with Dr. Douglas Johnston, founder and president of the Center for Religion and Diplomacy. And he's talking on the USU campus today at 4.30 in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium as a part of the Tanner Talk series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. So, Dr. Johnston, you, you mentioned before the break um, your work in the madrasas, and you're, you're able to get in with some uh, you know, teaching about tolerance and uh, uh, into some some of the madrasas, so you have to break through that barrier of of hatred, of rage. That I guess that uh, you know that's produced by this cycle of violence. And I wonder if you could expand on that. How how do you do that? That's that's key. Well, it is key, and um, I would, uh, I, as I mentioned uh, in the last segment there, that uh, our project director for that uh, was uh, uh, terribly. Um, gifted individual who understands how to interact with uh, uh, the folks who are full of rage who are, and who are not. Uh, and uh, once you start having a few victories, uh, you know, then your reputation precedes you, and that helps pave the way. But in all situations where we work overseas, one of the first things we do is we partner with an indigenous NGO uh, <laughs> one that already commands, uh, has credibility and, and commands a trust of the people that we want to work with. And that way we don't have to start from scratch. Uh, so we have folks uh, who are native to the area and who are very brave <laughs> uh, lead the way. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, at one point, I'll give you an example, at one point, uh, one of, in our, one of our workshops, there was a Taliban commander of some renown, and, and um, he was despondent because he lost two sons in the fighting. And he says, "We don't know what America wants." And uh, uh, so this, uh, you know, he 
said, if you come after us with guns, we've no no recourse but to respond in kind. And so this led to an invitation for me to come to the mountains to speak to their senior leadership about what America wants. And I I, I did that two months later. And and uh, but that. That whole thing had to be orchestrated, and you know, I ended up uh, addressing 57 Taliban commanders in the mountains of Pakistan, along with several uh, tribal and religious leaders. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious. What what did you tell them that what America wants? What did you tell them? Well, I told them very uh, basically. I, I told them that. Uh, what, what America wanted was for them to uh, lay down their arms, distance themselves from al-Qaeda, and to reconcile with the Karzai government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I must confess that during the two-month interim there, I made the rounds of state and defense and the agency to make sure whatever I said was consistent with U.S. policy. And uh, so this was, this was pretty standard fare at the time. One of the interesting questions that emerged from uh, our about two-and-a-half-hour discussion uh, when they asked, what do the American people want? And I breathed a sigh of relief there because, uh, you know, it meant that they were still cutting us a little slack and distinguishing between our government and our people, even though we, our people had recently reelected the administration that was causing all their grief. And uh, so it, uh, I told them there that what the American people want was peace in the re- region with democratically stable governments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so it was, you know, pretty straightforward stuff. You answer a question, I wonder if you'd answer in brief, we're coming down to the end of the program here, but it's it's on our minds a lot. We did a full program on this recently. Um, trying to wrap our heads around why young people would would get involved, you know, and, and admittedly, you know, I'm for one speaking from it as a middle-aged man, uh, I, you know, that's, I'm not the demographic perhaps ISIS is for one is, is targeting, but why would a young person get involved? Let's say ISIS or, or some of these other, you know, extremist groups. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a key question and we've looked at it. There've been articles put out by folks that, uh, uh make a, pretty convincing case, but basically what they do is they, uh, you know, they'll, they'll take youngsters that are feeling like they're, you know, not amounting to much in life and, and uh, um, really don't have the kind of um, values infused in them that uh, all of us would hope that we do infuse into our children. But you can find a lot of uh, a kind of... Uh, Openings in the in in the late teens, uh, especially in early twenties, where uh, folks are you know they, they they they'd like some excitement, some adventure, and you know ISIS and these other groups are very very sophisticated in uh, how they uh, uh, mount their arguments and uh, they, they present things in a very false manner. By the way, because people who go over there and get involved. Uh, come away very disillusioned, as you might imagine. But but nevertheless, uh, folks that you think uh, would not pay any attention to stuff like that uh, find themselves quite vulnerable to it, and, um, and they buy in. Um, a lot of places, for example, in Pakistan, you know, we're, we're very mindful that we could win all kinds of hearts and minds, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a job to offer these folks, they've got one of two choices. If you graduate from a 
madrasa, you've got about a 10% chance of finding a job in another madrasa or it's a, you know, a, a, in a mosque or what have you. And the rest of the 90%, you know, don't have the skills to, to uh, command normal employment. So, so oftentimes, that, you know, getting paid to be an insurgent is the only option. We're uh, here toward the end. I promise this question. I'm interested in it. Uh, here it is. Uh, this is the uh, title of a blog post on the uh, website of International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Is secularism a necessary condition for democratization? It's a very interesting question. Are you posing uh, that I'm question? posing that to you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're, no, you're it's Cliff not. Nice version. It's not. It, okay. uh, it, it certainly, on, on the face of it, can be very helpful. But uh, we, at one point, before the elections in Pakistan, uh, we received a uh, grant from the Asia Foundation to see what we could do to uh, um, get the madrasas to support the election process, you know, the democracy, if you will. And um, we were able to do that, and many of them got very turned on to the idea. I mean, there's just all sorts of license uh, within the Quran, and uh, you know, in fact, there's a, a book on my shelf here written by a, a friend of mine who's a top Shia scholar. It's called the, the Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism. Uh, it's there to be uh, gleaned and pulled out, just as as uh, our passages that seemingly promote violence and all the rest of it. But uh, it's not a prerequisite. You don't have to be secular to have a democratic country. I wonder, uh, and and I want to end with this. This is um, I've been thinking about this uh, since I read it. It's a pretty impactful question, and this is back to the uh, the film, back to the back from the brink, which uh, treats you know gang members, former gang members in in L.A., and then uh, people have been engaged in violence in Lebanon, and I've been talking about Pakistan, and this is on. Uh, I think part of the where you want to get this film is out to students, right? And and so this is from a, a set of classroom questions, but it's it's a key question, and it cuts a lot of different ways. Here's the question: Is there a set of people or values that would make you upset enough to hurt others? And you know you could apply it to um, the, these people who regret their actions that they got involved in violent extremism, they got out. Uh, you could apply it to you know young people traveling off to ISIS today. Or you could apply it to to you and me. I've been thinking about that with me as well. That's a that's a key question. Mm-hmm. It is a key question. I think it probably has as many answers as people who uh, step up to the plate to answer it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, but it but it sure gets to the heart of the the matter, doesn't it? And and, and well, it, try to get people does, out of that. Know. You know, if they get into yeah. extremism. Well, it does, and, you know, it's uh, so much of this is human nature. And one of the things I've found very, uh, very interesting is, you know, we, one of the arrows in our quiver is uh, something called faith-based reconciliation seminars, and these take about three and a half days, and we uh, cause people to have to go very deep about their own impressions, attitudes, and perceptions of others. And what we're really trying to do is bring the transcendent aspects of their personal religious faith to bear in overcoming the secular obstacles to peace. And, and our second project was in Kashmir, and we were trying to develop a cooperative attitude between the uh, next generation leaders of the uh, Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu sects in uh, in, in Kashmir. And this one time, we were ha- our first we started on the Muslim side, and we had a core leadership group there, and 
sitting down with them, and they had been through uh, a couple of these seminars and and uh, that we had sponsored, and two of us uh, sort of uh, piped up and said that they had, uh, because of the seminars they had and its uh, whole theme of forgiveness, uh, which is the only way you break the cycle of revenge, by the way. Nothing else does it. And, and forgiveness sounds like a very simple concept. It's, uh, it's, it's anything but. It's very nuanced when you get into it. But in any event, these two guys talked about how they had now come to forgive, uh, been able to forgive the uh, perpetrators of, uh, you know, having killed members of their immediate family. And uh, in one case, it was the man's son, and he's got tears coming down his cheek, you know, and kind of blew my mind. I thought, you know, I was thinking to myself that, you know, forgiveness is not the first thing that leaps to mind when you think of Islam. And then I wondered if I, who uh, am a card-carrying Christian, you know, and purport to be about forgiveness, could I internalize it as well as they had, you know? And I don't know the answer to that question until I've, you know, had to make the same walk. Mm-hmm. You'd like to think you could, but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm trying to do what I consider to be the right thing these days, but, you know, I don't think that my... You know, if, if somebody did something to uh, my wife or my sons or what have you, uh, my urge for revenge would be no less than anybody else's. You know, and then and then the question becomes, well, what can you do with that? How can you channel that uh, in a way that uh, at the end of the day you'll feel better about the whole thing? And it's tough. It's very tough stuff. Hmm. Well, we'll uh, hear more about this uh, faith-based diplomacy at a talk at 4.30 this afternoon. Everybody's invited. That's uh, in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the Utah State University campus. And this talk is a part of the Utah State University College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Talk Series. Talks titled Faith-Based Diplomacy as a Counter to Violent Extremism. And I've been talking with Dr. Douglas Johnston, who's founder and president of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Uh, Douglas Johnson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for listening today. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, we'll continue this discussion of religion in the world. Uh, Acclaimed author Karen Armstrong will be my guest. In her book, Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence, she writes that in the West, the idea that religion is inherently violent is now taken for granted. She says that the problem lies not in the multifaceted activity we call religion, but in the violence embedded in our human nature and the nature of the state. Or if you come down to this issue, hope you'll tune in for Dr. Karen Armstrong tomorrow. She'll be one of the major speakers at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City, which is beginning on Thursday. Karen Armstrong, tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.